and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Aaron Coulthate and I'm the news editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Trevor Jackson, a man who has contributed to music culture from many different angles. As an artist and musician, he goes to extreme lengths to buck trends. Just look at last year's solo album, which he released across 12 different formats, including USB, VHS, reel-to-reel and vinyl. Jackson's at his best when confronted with laziness in art. He's the kind of guy who will happily call out anyone he sees cutting corners. He's just as honest when the topic of conversation is himself, talking up his design work while talking down his music productions. He's never been afraid to speak his mind, and that's exactly what he did when I caught up with him in London recently. You can find our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. An exchange with Trevor Jackson, up next. Trevor, you were involved with several uh, interesting projects in 2015, but I want to dive into the format album first. It came out on 12 different musical formats, each containing a a separate track. Now, a lot of people are inspired by vinyl or cassette or maybe more archaic formats, but what was it that was inside you? What was driving you to go completely against the grain and release an album that in its pure form is essentially impossible to listen to coherently unless you went to the initial exhibition? I feel like a a weird time traveller because the last time I released an album was over 15 years ago. And so I've been very quiet on the music front for that long. And then I feel like I've been dropped back into a time where everything has changed. And I didn't necessarily feel comfortable with that. Dropped into a time where people put albums out, records out, they're forgotten about a month later because there's so much information, there's so much music and everything's become disposable music necessarily doesn't mean as much to people anymore, specifically physical music and actually ownership of something. So that was the main driving point behind doing the project was trying to find a way, an interesting way for me to to make the album, give it some impact, and at the same time just make people question stuff as much as possible. That was kind of the initial thought behind it. Did you feel that the concept overshadowed the actual music on the album? If I'm truthful... I didn't feel that confident about the music, but I felt really confident about the concept. You know, I've been sitting in my studio bedroom for 10, 15 years doing this music and no one had heard it apart from one friend of mine. And I didn't actually think it was that good. In retrospect, I listened to it now a year later. And I'm like, fuck, actually it was pretty good. And I feel a little bit maybe I let myself down and the concept might have put some of the people off listening to the music. I mean, I didn't want it to come out as a normal CD in, in vinyl. I only wanted people to be able to come to the exhibition and see it in that format or people to buy the limited editions. I, I kind of wanted to keep it like that as much as possible. And that was, as I said, honestly, the fact that I was a little bit unsure about how good the music was. And there were certain expectations for myself and other people like, oh, Trevor Jackson's releasing music after this amount of time. What's it going to sound like? And a little bit of me was like, oh, God, I, I'm really shitting myself. What people, I mean, I don't really care what people think, but part of me was... I just felt strange about opening myself up creatively and musically again after such a long time. You know, so it, it, was, a, it was an odd one. I've heard you speak about this before and it seems like you, you've got a certain confidence and swagger when it comes to your design work and your visual work, but yeah. that doesn't always translate to how confident you are as a producer or a musician. Why is that? I think because I feel like Forrest Gump, right? I feel just lucky that I've been dropped into these points in time if you look at my resume, it's nuts, you know. I was there during the New Romantic times. I was there during Acid House. I was there during Drum and... But I was, you know, pretty much every, you know, youth culture music scene since the 70s, 80s. I, I've been there. And I don't like people with egos, you know. I, I don't really have an ego about about 
anything I do. I don't like bragging. I mean, I, I don't really like attention. I don't mind doing things like this because I know you're going to ask me some good questions and I know it's kind of, I can talk about interesting things, but I've never got into this game to be famous per se or to be well known. I've, you know, a lot of the things I did have always been in the shadows when I was doing the underdog. No one even, I, I didn't even at the beginning tell people who I was. I don't really enjoy the attention and I think that's part of the thing why I don't necessarily I don't, you know, I'm not into people coming up and saying oh that's amazing I love what you do. I, I kind of feel awkward about it. I mean even when I see my mum and dad they ask me what I'm doing I'm kind of like uh, I don't even tell them so it's kind of I'm just an odd personality in, in that way and it's, it takes me a lot of time like now like I said now a year later the format album I think actually you know that's pretty good and it takes me a long at the time maybe I'm so deep within what I do you know it's my life that I get so lost in it that I hate it by the end of it and I'm like oh god you know, most people do but if I'm not making music, I'm doing design stuff. It's, it's, I'm always working. So I'm always within it and it's very hard to step out of it and be objective, you know. And at the time, how much consideration did you put into matching a track to a certain format? What was the method there? Well, the method was based on two things. It's the length of a track. So I knew on a seven inch, I can't fit more than a three. I didn't want to fit more than a three, four minute track on a seven inch. It was a lot of it was to do with length of tracks, really. Like the longest track was on the reel to reel. And some of the tracks at the same time, you know, each of those formats do have a specific sound feeling to them. And so a lot of the tracks were matched to, you know, what, what would sound better on a DAT or what would sound better on a, on a, a mini disc, you know, referencing some points in time as well. I, it was a kind of a subconscious thing as well. And were there any examples when you, you saw people interacting with the album, either at the exhibition or elsewhere, that in a way that really pleased you with what stood out? Just to kind of briefly explain so if people don't understand I released this album in all these different formats but at the same time I did a I did an exhibition in the Brewer Street car park an exhibition for people to hear the album and a lot of that was to do with I didn't want any sense of hierarchy I actually didn't like the fact that press get the album three months before everyone else so no one got sent the album and the only way that anyone could actually come down and hear it was by coming to the show and seeing the show and I had 12 screens each screen was showing me playing that specific format, taking it out of its packaging, putting it on either a turntable, putting it on a reel-to-reel, -reel, and the whole video was just the length of details of that machine playing the song. And you walked into this space and you saw all 12 screens, big screens, like 18-inch screens, and as a whole, it worked because you just saw the series of large images and these things either revolving like reel-to-reels going around or record decks going around, all at different angles. So it's this huge, big, almost like a kinetic sculpture. You heard this mix of all these different little pieces of music together and as an entire piece it worked and that just for me without anyone in there it was a hugely satisfying experience to do something of that scale and to form you know formulate an idea and actually get it right and then obviously it worked as an individual thing because each person could stand in front of, in front of each screen and, and listen to each track i mean it was phenomenal i mean that on a social level it was just fantastic for me at this point in my career to see so many people i haven't seen for ages and everyone came down with people really supported it. You know, there's there a sense of mystery and surprise because no one had heard any of the music. I'd made sure, you know, partly because I you know, wasn't sure about it and partly because I liked the whole aspect of keeping something kind of mysterious and, and secret. And it was hugely satisfying. I mean, I was very disappointed. I, I was going to try and do it in New York. It didn't work. And also in Australia. So I only ever did it once, which was kind of sad. Would you consider doing it again or is that sort of passed now? I'd, I'd love to try and do it again. I mean, musically, the music's been out there now, so it kind of it, it serves as somewhat a different purpose. But as a an archive of recorded mediums, it, it still works as a piece. So yeah, I'm not adverse to doing it again at all. And you mentioned you were you were happy with the artwork. It was very minimal. So what was the sort of process behind that? Well, there wasn't any artwork. I mean, was it an RA review or a fact review? And they were saying it's a bit disappointing that after many years of Trevor Justin doing great artwork, the artwork for this isn't really any artwork. And I'm like, that's the point because the whole idea of the artwork was just the project was called Format. All it was was each format in a clear case with a little bit of information explaining what it was. And that's what I wanted to do. It's kind of anti-artwork, you know. So I think a lot of people would have expected, wow, what's Trevor Jackson going to do for this artwork? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to do any artwork. That's, that is the artwork. So that's kind of the thought behind that as well. And you mentioned that, you know, it, it got a normal release afterwards, sort of on... Unfortunately, on, yeah. Yeah, and so, you, yeah, it sounds like you're sort of vaguely against that. I just didn't see the point. I think it actually... I could see the financial point. Final Factory wouldn't have made any money or made their money back. I mean, it's a hugely expensive project to put together. But I like the idea. I mean, what was also fascinating was that, so someone came down to the show or they could buy the, the, the format online and for at least a few months, they were the only person on the planet to actually own that track. 
It wasn't streamable. It was nowhere. So if you came and bought that seven inch or that mini disc, you know, they were the only people to own a piece of my music. And also in this day and age where, you know, things are getting ripped and YouTube and everything. I mean, it was really lovely to know that no one actually uploaded any tracks. So it was great to, that people respected my work in that way. And they, I mean, a lot of it is about taking control of how you release your music. That was probably a huge part of it. I had complete control over who listened to it and how it was put out there. You know, the, the normal situation when you just upload something or send out, send out your CDRs to press and then before you know it, everyone gets to hear it. I don't really like that. I want to keep things special, you know. And you pick from a pool of 150-odd uh, unreleased songs that you've made over the past sort of 15-plus years. Yeah. What's the situation with the, the ones that are still unreleased? Are you planning to put them out? Well, I've got it down to about 80. I've got rid of a lot of them, which just, I just don't think are very good. And the, the plan is this year to get them out. Again, I mean, the thing is I took a, a break over Christmas and New Year, the first one I've ever had for a long time, really did nothing work-related and come back. And now I can be more objective. I'm like, actually, that one's pretty good. That, that one sounds good as well. And I feel a lot more confident about these ones. So there's a lot of music I'm going to try and get out some way this year. And maybe, in a, you know, not normally. I don't want to do it in a really uh, generic, formulaic way. I'm going to try and find an interest way of doing it. But there's certainly going to be a lot more music from me this year. You told Giles Peterson last year that you were considering a like a post-only label where people would have to write a letter to get the records. Is that still in the pipeline? I really want to do, yeah, I do. I, but then I've almost blown it now because people are going to know it's me, but I didn't want to do, people to know it's me. I wanted to do something where, yeah, definitely where there's no email address, there's no telephone number. The only way you can buy the records is by writing a letter or writing something physical and sending me a check or sending me cash. I might still do that somehow because I think conceptually it's a really strong idea. And you said you took a bit of a break, but are you back making music now? Are you planning to make music in 2016? I've been planning to make new music for 15 years, but I've been so bogged down with all this stuff that's been sitting around. I mean, this is it. The reason I need to get the music done is just to clear my head so I can finally make some new music. I mean, part of me is thinking maybe i start a new label, but if I start a new label, I'd want to be releasing really forward-thinking brand new sounding music you know i do my nts show every two weeks and i concentrate on just playing brand new music and that in a way is actually quite intimidating when you're making your own music so i just listen to my own music and thinking shit this is stuff i did so long ago it sounds a bit dated so yeah i'm, I'm not i'm not quite sure i mean you mentioned the nts show which feels like a it sort of serves as a bit of a backbone to your sort of musical world at the moment and you play tunes on there from sort of newer labels, Lies, Antinote, so on. Deeper than that. They're obvious labels. I mean... Well, give me some examples of uh, the kind of labels and artists that you are digging at the moment. I mean, there's, there's so many. There's so much stuff I'm into. But I, th I mean, I love everything Jamal Moss does, to be honest with you. Anything he makes, I, I love. I love that band um, Niagara from Portugal. Really good. Robert Crash, don't know if you know his stuff. From Italy, he makes really good stuff. All the guys from Dusseldorf, Toulouse Low Tracks, Crydler... Don't DJ. The often music label is really great. Obviously, all the sex tag sort of that stuff I love. Son of Raw, pretty much all the stuff they do. The guys from LA. That's, that, I mean, they're not not fun label. I love that. There's, there's tons of stuff I like. And I just want to dive a bit deeper into this sort of music searching and and buying habits. How are you kind of um, digesting digesting music? It's interesting because I DJ maybe once a month now. I, I've I've cut that down a little bit. And my show is every two weeks. So what I do is I put two day, well, a day and a half, two days aside every fortnight where I just spend all the time looking for music. And what I normally do is, you know, I'm a strong believer in buying physical things, but to be honest with you, I can't afford to buy everything I want. And when I'm, you know, I'm probably buying 200 tracks a, a month, you know, I have to do it digitally. So I start off, Boomcat is probably my, my first point. I put my first um, place I go. And then I go to Juno. I spend the day just listening. And I actually, I, quite, I, you know, pretty, I enjoy it. I actually and far more enjoy listening. I pretty much listen to every release. So I'll go onto Boomcat and listen to every single release that's come out the past two weeks and just buy it. And then if stuff is vinyl only, I'll, I'll buy it on vinyl. Obviously, you know, things that are vinyl only, things I buy on vinyl. But it's something I can get digitally. I'll probably buy it digitally at the moment just purely because I don't have the space. Yeah, I've heard you say in previous interviews that your record collection sort of sitting around the 50,000 mark. Is that still the case? I've got rid of about 10,000. I've sold about 10,000 over the past year and a half, couple of years, and I'm probably going to get it down another 10. But I've got half of it at home and half of it in storage. So, you know, I don't have a big apartment at the moment, so I don't have the room for everything. 
the fun thing about doing the NTS show is when I play the music, I haven't even listened to most of it properly. So it's the first time I've listened to the whole track very often. You know, for me, doing a radio show is like having a record label, but without any of the hassle. I don't have to deal with any of the bands, any of the managers, nothing. I don't, you know, or I spend money buying the tracks, but that's it. And for me, it's always been about, I've been into discovering and pushing other people's music more than myself. That's something that's kind of, um, and that probably goes back to the thing about confidence about my own music, but I'm far more interested in kind of um, pushing other people than I am myself, maybe. And you mentioned sort of running a label there. I do want to ask you about output. Yeah, um, sure. But first I wanted to sort of talk about one of the other big things for you in, in 2015, and that was your um, compilation you did for Adrian Sherwood's On New Sound. Now, I heard you cite that label was an inspiration in a RBMA interview like six years ago. Yeah. So what was that like for the project to come together and to tell me a bit about it? I mean, On New Sound for me, like Adrian Sherwood has been a huge inspiration to me since I was a you know, young teenager. I've, you know, I've always supported his music, played his music in my sets. I've always listened to his music continually. And Matthew from Warp, because Warp I'm now administering and looking after the catalogue, he gave me, got in touch with me last year, just said, would you be up for doing a compilation? I'm like, yeah. And I think I was off the bat, I interviewed Adrian on a, I did a Strong Room radio show a few years ago and I did a good two hour interview with him then. And I think Matthew might have, must have heard that. And so he was like, do you want to do a comp? I'm like, without a doubt, it's like a dream comp. I'll pay you for me to do a comp. And then I just literally went through all my record collection, picking out the things I like. And then we found also they're baking a lot of old tapes, unreleased versions and stuff. So I had the, the honor to go through tons of unreleased stuff and just compiled together a comp of stuff, which I thought was, I mean, a lot of people think On Your Sound is a reggae label and it's far more than that. And so for me, it was about picking the more obscure cuts and the odder things, which a lot of the things at the time Adrian didn't even like, he thought I was nuts putting the stuff on there. And now he's like, wow, this actually, I understand why people like it. But when I interviewed him on, on that radio show, he was quite dismissive about a lot of the stuff I was playing. And I actually felt a bit awkward because I realised a lot of that music I was playing was from a period of his, of his life where he necessarily wasn't that happy. Prince Farai, his best friend, had been killed. And he just went on a bit of a bender, making loads of mad music with Pan Cow and Ice Dyes and Noin Bouton and Shriek Back. Tons of people he made music with that weren't from his normal kind of um, genre. And it was really extreme music. And I think maybe that period of time kind of triggered off bad memories from I don't know. It's been so well received, the compilation, that I think he looks at it in a different light now. And I'm still in awe of the guys. You know, I DJ with him at is it Pickle Factory, yeah. Played to play after him, and I was shitting myself. Even when I met him afterwards, I could hardly even talk to the guy. It was really strange, but he's a lovely man. And, um, yeah, the, the, the breadth of music. I mean, hopefully I'm going to try and do another comp with him as well. Not quite sure what yet. But it was, you know, incredible experience doing that. Really, really great fun. And uh, before the On New Sound compilation, of course, you did two... Um metal dance compilations for strut which were yeah. you know really well received as well um i mean the first one was the number one compilation of uh 2012 and ra and um i mean that mix of classic and rare that you kind of nailed on on metal dance was that was that tricky to achieve no because I, it's like my musical taste is completely across the board and i grew up with pop music, commercial music, as much as I grew up with underground music. This morning, Morris White from Earth, Wind & Fire died. I spent all morning listening to Earth, Wind & Fire. I am probably the most commercial album they ever did, but I grew up with that record. And for me, the clubs I was going to, I wasn't going just to clubs where people were piercing each other's dicks and listening to just constant noise for five hours. I was listening to going to clubs where they were playing Soft Cell, Human League and New Order. And I went to clubs where people were playing the Doobie Brothers. I went everywhere. And so the metal dance compilations weren't supposed to be kind of like this is the soundtrack of the time this is my soundtrack and so I had to include kind of more commercial cuts on there and also at the time when I was putting together some I was cringing sometimes thinking do I put like Cabra Voltaire Seconds Too Late so obvious I can't really I'm gonna look a bit of a dick and I put it on there and then I go out and I get like 16 70 year olds coming out and say god that track was amazing I'm thinking oh, yeah, they, they see it in a completely different way so it's always important to me all these compilations I do to try to appeal to their heads and the nerds, but also try to keep the doors open so it's accessible enough that newbies can listen to it. That's, I think that's kind of important. And there's always going to be people discovering Cabaret Voltaire or Severed Heads for the first time. That's it. It's, it's, I'd be a liar to say that I am a reggae dub aficionado. I'm not. I got into On New Sound through hip hop. And now, you know, through Adrian and through On New Sound, I've been exploring more reggae stuff. You know, you, you get into reggae, you get into jazz, it, it's scary. The, the amount of music is just insane, you know? So I, I'm totally 
you know, it's nice to know that I can kind of open doors and, and let people discover things they haven't heard before. And how much overlap do you, do you feel there was between the metal dance compilations and say the influences that informed your playgroup album from 2001? I mean, the playgroup album was more, you know, I'd come out of doing uncle remixes where I'd spent like super nerd head in front of the computer headphones on 24 7 just making beats and making the beats as dark and as fucked up as possible and i just got so sick of it when i did the playgroup album at the time everyone was so serious that everything was serious and complex so i was looking at war parties and thinking like i love this stuff but it, everyone takes themselves so seriously so playgroup was going to be more fun it, it was tagged into electro clash but it wasn't because the record was more of a live sounding record i had live musicians on it and it was more of a, a electro funk record than electro clash record I mean, the connection between that and metal dance is certainly connections because it was inspired by, you know, a period of time, probably 79 through to 85, which for me now, I realise is probably the most productive, most exciting time for me of all type type of music, of every genre. That that period of time is just fascinates me. And you told Giles Peterson in an interview last year that it was never your intention to start DJing until the Playgroup album came out and then you did a DJ Kicks compilation and you were yeah. kind of sort of forced into it. I mean, now that you've been doing it on and off for sort of 20 odd years, how do you regard it as a as an art form compared to your other interests? I actually, I, I forgot that when, when I spoke to Giles, I used to DJ when I was young. I used to do clubs. I used to play at weird clubs in London and do loads of my friends' parties and stuff. So I did used to DJ, but it wasn't like professionally. I've been very selective. I mean, last year I hardly DJed at all. I just wasn't in the mood for it. And also because I just found a lot of the music that I really loved and I wanted to play just wasn't working. So unless I probably played a club with 100 people in it, it was hard to play that stuff on a bigger dance floor. But this year I want to play more. I've, I've started getting into, into record box and USBs, which I didn't want to, but I found it actually quite empowering. I mean, I was playing with Tractor for a while, but I didn't like having the computer. It was always a bit unreliable. Not Tractor itself, but having a computer there and having to carry it around with me. And I kind of am starting to enjoy it again. I don't know how much I want to be part of DJ culture per se. I don't like getting up on stage you know I, I don't like that kind of spotlight on me thing I actually would rather just play the music and be a little bit hidden and also take my girlfriend with me now which is fun because you know when you travel by yourself all the time it's just fucking boring it's depressing you end up sitting down with a bunch of promoters just talking about drugs and, and it just becomes totally boring so if I take someone with me it's more fun and I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna play a lot more this year and when I played Bergheim's birthday in December in the hall and I just played like a four-hour chill-out set which I really loved and I wish there were more chill out rooms. Got to happily play all night, just play weirdo music. I'm going to do an all night with Optimo soon, which is going to be fantastic in London. So I'm going to do one room all night and they're going to do the other room. I, I play Robert Johnson, I play Bergheim, I play kind of Bob Beeman. I, I just pick select clubs. I don't think I've ever in my whole career played on a Friday and a Saturday night, done two gigs in a row. I like to keep it special. To be honest, the hardest thing is when I'm buying so much new music and you don't play regularly, I pretty much play a new set every time I play, which can get quite exhausting, but I, I'm enjoying it a lot more than I have for a long time. And I've heard you say in the past that you felt restricted as a DJ, that you know you want to be able to play across the board and that you sort of routinely found that maybe crowds weren't up Response, for that. Yeah. But I guess when you've got people like Forte or Dan Snaith, like throwing sort of African records into their yeah. sets on a main stage of a festival, does it make you feel like the crowds are, are sort of more open to eclectic DJing? These They're days? open to that. I, I, yeah, but I think that, Kieran and, and Dan have a very specific crowd that have quite a different crowd maybe. Kieran used to come to my all my early DJ sets so he, he's taken the mantle and he's made it quite and it's flattering you know I was at the time one of his favourite DJs and he'd come and hear me play all the time I remember playing at Love in New York a really quiet gig and he was like the only person on the dance floor the whole night in the middle of the dance floor like going to me what the fuck what, what, what's that record and it is inspiring to see them play those those sets but you know I think uh, I'm not sure if I you know in, in festival environments it's, it's very hard they, they, they've got a very unique position to be able to do what they do I have a lot of admiration that they've carved that that audience you know Kieran's got such a huge audience he can really do what he wants now and I think that's what it is when you create your own audience and they want to hear you play they want to see you you can do anything you want and I don't think I've actually because I've kept myself kind of in, in the sidelines or, or been a little bit not as forthcoming and DJing as much as I should do. I haven't genuinely built up that kind of fan base that I can fill a dance floor in a big club with everybody wants to listen to every single record I play. I, I'm, I'm the kind of DJ at the moment, it's quite interesting. I go on, 
I clear the dance floor of all the idiots and then I start pulling in the people that are really into the music. And, I, and I'd rather, I mean, I'm not doing myself any justice for my promoters and whatever, but I would rather have, be at the end of the night and have 50 people on the dance floor going nuts into it than having, you know, 200 people kind of into it, but chatting and just, you know, not that bothered about it. So I'm kind of, um, I polarise people when I DJ, but I think that's quite, that's quite a good way to do it. I guess let's dive back a bit to 96 when you started Output. Can you tell me what the situation was there in terms of why you decided to start a label? I mean, um, you'd already run, the, of course, the, yeah. the hip-hop label before that, but in terms of starting Output. Most of what I do is reactionary. I'm not the kind of person to think, wow, this is hot, this is cool, I'm going to make money from this, I've got to do it. I've always been, what is not happening? What can I not hear? What can I not see? And that's kind of what I'm talking about starting a new label. I don't want to release it, start a new label of stuff which everyone else is doing. I'm not interested in doing that. And when I started Output, it was really a question of, I, the hip-hop label had closed. I was sick of hip-hop attitudes. Music, it was boring me. And I just was really, at the time, I was, you know, through hunting for breaks and for beats, and I, I was digging into the weirdo shit that no one else is interested in. And I just thought, I want to start a label where I can put out some really crazy shit that actually no one else likes apart from me. I was in quite a fortunate position. I had a, a distributor who was willing to fund me. Well, not fund me, but do a P&D deal, so do production distribution. And I was like, you know what? I don't give a shit if I don't sell any records. I'm just going to start putting out stuff I like. I almost put out a few records just so I know people would hate them. And you know, I was very lucky enough to catch up with, um, you know, to hook up with Kieran Fortet. And, and from there, things started to to roll. And you know, I had no, you know, I, I, never in a million years would I ever think that Kieran would, not undermining his talent, hugely talented, but I never at that time thought he would ever be as popular. As and you, he was. you you bumped into him at Rough Trade in Covent Garden. Is no, that not, right? not me. A friend of mine did. In fact, Luke from Graham, a bass player from Graham, he bumped into him, and, and Kieran gave him a, a cassette. And Luke was a friend at the time. And he said, "Oh, this kid gave me this cassette," and I listened to it. I was like, "Yeah, this is pretty interesting." So it just it just went from there, really. You know, Kieran's work was one of the things that put output on the map. But of course, he also released stuff from. Uh, the Rapture LCD Sound System. I mean, LCD Sound System, Losing My Edge was a co-release with DFA. Is that right? Or what happened? Well, no, no, people have to realise the reason they wanted to work with me is because I had a fucking hot label at the time. I was putting out fantastic records. It wasn't like I went on hands and they go, oh, please, you know, they had labels begging them. Tim Goldsworthy, who at the time co-owned DFA with James Murphy, was a friend of mine from Moax days. But, you know, so I was putting out records by Kieran. I had Sonovac. I had t I had loads of different things. And what they were doing really fitted into what I was doing. And I put out the LCD Sound System and the Rapture Records throughout the whole world, excluding America. And pretty much built those records up, you know. I mean, Losing My Edge is kind of now looked as an era-defining tune. Yeah. I mean, how did that change things in terms of the record label for, for you and your life? I mean, to start off with, I preferred the B-side. Beat Connection was a track I, I always played. Losing My Edge, I loved. I, di I didn't see that record any differently than any other records because all the records I was putting out were getting a great reaction. It wasn't like, wow, LCD Sound System, it, the best thing on output. People were really into all the records I was putting out. It started off as one of the other, another great record that I put out during that period. And then it started to, it started to, gain momentum and it was just a weird one because uh, maybe I was you know, a bit of an idiot but we didn't have a contract or anything we, it was just a handshake we were just friends and I think it just started to snowball the truth is no one ever taught me how to run a record label maybe it's different now but I actually just naively just did it and I just thought to myself okay I'm not going to make any money because I'm making money from doing design work I'm honest with the bands I was always saying to the bands I'm like look you're not going to make any money we're not selling enough records, but you're going to get attention. And hopefully from that, you get gigs and you can get some remixes. You earn a bit and DJ, you know, you learn some money from that. And I was really naive. And, and before I knew it, things just started to snowball. It was just me and one person running the label. And it was really bloody hard to try and, you know, it's really, I can't explain, but if you have a situation where you have maybe 20 different records, bands you're putting out, one of the bands starts to blow up, makes more money than the other ones. You're having to spend that money on pressing up more records. It just, it becomes confusing. And I never purposely meant to fuck it up, but it just kind of got fucked up in its own kind of, in its own way. It just became a nightmare. It was probably five of the worst years of my life. It was horrible because it just became a business. You know, I just saw the worst in 
everyone, be it from record labels around me that were trying to nick my bands, people that said they were my mates and they weren't, the artists themselves, some of them became a nightmare as I do. It just, and, and, and for me, it wasn't like, you know, a lot of people get into the music industry because they're not creative. They can't do their own thing and they, they feed off of other people's creativity. So it's like, you know, I want to be in a record label because I can be around all these cool people and I can, I can you know, it, it makes me feel better about myself. But I'm like, well, fuck, I can do my own shit anyway. Why am I doing this? And it got to a point where it just became hugely detrimental to my life, the label. I loved the music. I loved everything I was putting out, but just the business of running a record label was not what I wanted to do. And I had opportunities to, and I was maybe at, was very adamant because a lot of people wanted to either buy the label out or wanted to help me, bigger businesses. And I just never, I wanted to stay completely independent just because I knew that when you do that situation at the beginning, it's great, they give you the money, but then in the end, if you're not actually selling records, it's kind of comes into a bit of a nightmare. And, um, you know, as a label, we never made any money ever. All the money went straight back into putting out more records. So it wasn't necessarily a, um, a viable kind of thing for anyone else to do. I mean, people I had meetings towards the end and people are like, okay, we want to take the label over because we know that you can't do it yourself. Show us a contract. I'm like, I haven't got contracts with any bands whatsoever. And they're like, what? I'm like, no, there's no contracts with anyone. And it was like, you know, maybe silly. I'm proud of what I did at the time. But like I said, for five years, it was an utter nightmare. It was horrible. Was there a particular low point where you were, you were just like, okay, no, this, this needs to stop now? No, no, it got to a stage when I got to about the maybe the 90th release and I had MCPS on my back because of, there was some, I mean, I won't go into now, but, but it, you know, running a record label is complicated with, with mechanicals and stuff like this. And we did something wrong that we, we never, you know, everyone got paid the way they're supposed to get paid, but we did, I was paying the bands directly instead of going through MCPS and they got cottoned onto it. They weren't happy. And they basically got me into the office and they were like, this is a situation unless you pay us this amount of money where they take their cut and pay the rest of the band, which I've kind of paid already you can't manufacture any more records. I'm like, unless I can manufacture records, I can't actually make the money back. And it was such a, they just did everything in their power to stop me from releasing records. And I actually had to get security guards to pull me out because I was so pissed off. I kicked off so badly. And that was a point. I'm like, why the fuck am I doing this? And then I just thought, sod it, the next 10 releases, because I wanted to get to 100 and kill it, would be digital only. And I gave them away for free. But that was a pretty low point, just thinking this is... I remember being in there and just thinking to myself... I'm not making a penny from this. I'm not even getting gigs from this. This is making my life a misery. And all I'm doing is becoming an A&R man for every other fucking record label out there. People are making money from my artists and what I've done. Why am I being crucified for it? So it was a difficult one. I mean, looking back at it now, sort of 10 years after the, the label closed, yeah. what would you do differently? I would just wouldn't have done it. Or if you have a record label, just only release your own music. A period of my life has just disappeared. I feel it literally... I can't explain. I mean, I, I can see some of the good times now, but it was purely through naivety and, I, and I'm not a businessman. You know, I, I can earn a living, but I've never been a businessman. So I suppose what I would have done, no, all the times I tried to get someone involved who was kind of like a, a business manager, they fucked me as well. They ended up getting more money than anyone else. It's difficult. And also the thing is, I think I got out at the right time because iTunes didn't even exist and YouTube didn't exist. And then that started kicking in. And download culture started to become prominent. I just knew it was like we were on a downward spiral because it was kind of like, unless you, I realized, unless you're a, a label that has one, like Exile had the Prodigy, for instance, unless you're a label that has one act that makes loads of money, it doesn't work. I had loads of acts, but not all of them were making any money. And it, it just wasn't the right way to do it. And I, and I only put, and I put out records just because I liked them. I didn't put out a record because I think, oh, this record's going to make loads of money. Well, you can maybe do that now, but you couldn't do that at the time. It just didn't work like that, you know? So the label finishes in 2006. Where did you take yourself creatively from there? I can't even remember. I was 40. I was hitting 40. It was nuts. A, a, a relationship was breaking up. My record label had closed. The day my record label closed, I came home and a cat I'd had for 21 years fucking died on the spot. It was the most insane time. I can't explain. And honestly, that year was probably like two, three years was a blur to me. It was fucking nuts. So I actually can't even remember what I did at that time. I'm no, I've no idea. I don't know what I did at that time. Actually, I, I can't even remember. You mentioned um, in previous interviews, there was a time about five years ago where yeah. you spent a, a year and a half, as you put it, sofa surfing and DJing in various cities around the world. You put everything in storage. Can you tell me about that experience? And it's not, I mean, it's not happy. I mean, literally, I closed the label. I can't remember what I did. And then my closest friend passed away in her sleep. I was looking after her and passed away in her sleep. I couldn't get lower. There was a four or five year period, which was really fucking bad. 
And then that's when I basically sold where I was living, put everything in storage and started traveling for a bit because I really needed to just completely rejuvenate myself. You know, I wasn't creatively inspired in any way whatsoever. And I don't know what happened. I think it was the metal dance compilations, probably. I started to kick myself back into gear about five years ago. That period of traveling that you mentioned, yep. um, where did you go and, and did you find that actually rejuvenate you? No, it's more like because I've been living in London my entire life. I've never lived anywhere else. So when you go through a hugely traumatic event, it makes you question your entire life. And I just did gigs, actually. It's not like I went to find myself. I just did gigs in different countries and stayed in places, be that Berlin or Israel or Australia. I just did gigs and stayed there for like three weeks, a month or something, just to see if there's any other cities in the world that I found exciting. And then by the end of it, I was like, I love London. I don't love London at the moment, but at that time, I, I really love London. I thought there's nowhere else like it. And London's my home and I need to be back in London because it's where I feel creatively most inspired. I'd like to talk about your work as a designer and a visual artist. I mean, you started out designing record covers, S-Express, Stereo MCs, Todd Terry, all of which is, is well documented. And you said at the time that, that the quality of the sleeves generally out there, especially in, in UK hip hop, was pretty poor. How do you rate the quality these days in terms of, of record sleeves of like small independent labels? There's so much good stuff now. But there's so much good everything because everything is more accessible. I mean, at the time when I was doing sleeves, the only point of reference I had was going to my library either seeing things around me, going to a library. I, I used to fly around the world trying to find books, you know, pre-internet. I used to dig like a nutter for records and books. I used to physically search for things around the world, right? And now everything is at your fingertips. Whether that makes things better or not, I don't know. Things certainly look better, but I actually don't care about how things look anymore. I care about the thought behind things. That's what matters most to me, why people do things. Because I actually think now... It's really easy to make things that look and sound good. So, yeah, on the surface, things look great. But quite what they're trying to say with everything, I don't know. The things that sleeves I used to do back in the day, they told little stories. They were directly like related to the culture that I was part of. I look at things now, I'm trying to I'm, I think of a bad example, something like Rinse FM, for instance. I've never understood that branding. That branding's like Designers Republic kind of... I never got it at the beginning. I... I for me, I, I couldn't see the link between like a Rinse FM logo and how the music was when it first started. And things like that matter to me. I think things need to explain. I mean, my whole career is about explaining, explaining sound visually. That's kind of what I do. And I think there needs to be a direct correlation to it. So I'm not into wallpaper. I'm not into pretty things. I'm not into this kind of Kate Morosi kind of like really patney kind of bullshit. I'm into things that actually have some depth and some proper impact that say something and that and, and now i'm slowly realizing and you're talking to someone who's i'm completely anal utter perfectionist i'm trying to lose that now and just be at a situation where i'm trying to do something which says something that's what i'd like to try and do anyway in terms of the design world have there been some things you've stumbled across in the past couple of years that you do feel there is a really good story behind that you have found you know to be particularly inspiring oh it's not necessarily a story. It's just a question of a correlation between the, the visuals and the music. I mean, I, I love Raston Orton. I mean, that is, you don't get more anal and perfect, but there, there's such a, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Carson Nikolai. The audio visual shows he did, the early ones I did were hugely inspiring to me, inspired by early abstract animators who did the visual music stuff, Oscar Fischinger, John Whitney in the 70s and 80s, and Carson Nikolai and, all the people, many of the people on his label, they are doing like a very modern version of that. And I, I, I love his aesthetic. I think it's a very strong aesthetic. And you mentioned before that you would, you know, in the sort of say pre-internet era, you would, you know, dig in libraries for books to get inspiration. What kind of books were would you go and, and check out? Well, when I first started, I was really inspired by Saul Bass and Paul Rand, you know, 50s and 60s, old school graphic designers, who at the time, you know, now they're like, well, they are, they're some of the greatest designers at the time, but... At that point in time, when I first started, people weren't necessarily into that kind of stuff. I mean, when I was doing my Bite It hip-hop label, I was really inspired by ECM covers, which as an aesthetic for hip-hop wasn't necessarily the, the right aesthetic to have. And then for output, a bit of everything, really. But it's always about, for me, it, 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 whenever I've worked with any artist, I listen to the music and I try and get into their head. And I, you know, it's not about me. It's not about me. You know, there used to be a lot of designers at the time, be Designers Republic, who I have respect for or they'd put their stat it would all you'd know and straight away that's a cover by them and I always found well no it's not about them it's about the music so I've always tried to put my own personality behind a little bit and, and make it about 
whoever I'm working with. So even on output, all the artists, when I did covers for them, it was about, I mean, the whole thing with the label as well. I try to stay in the background. It was always on the compilations. It was always about the artist's names were on the front. It didn't say a compilation on output recordings. It wasn't about that. And I'd seen, you know, I mentioned it before, but like James Lavelle is a good friend of mine and what he did with Mo Wax, it became difficult for him because he became bigger than the artist. And I think you always have, any label owner has that. If you're a musician and creative and you become bigger than your artist, it's always going to be a huge problem. And I've avoided that as much as possible. Am I right in saying you were commissioned to redesign the defected logo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So h- how did you go about that project in terms of getting it so the logo itself somehow reflected the music or the label's ethos? I mean, Defect is a really interesting one because I've known Simon Dunmore who ran the label for a long, long time. A lot of people wouldn't see the link thing. Why is this guy that's doing metal dance and on your sound doing Defected? What a dick. Why is he doing that for? But for me, I approached that project. First, I hadn't heard Defected stuff for a long, a long time. I listened to it. I thought this is no different than stuff that Get Physical are putting out or in many ways, even some of the InnerVision stuff. And I thought, people are snobs. Some of this music, it's just house music. It's good house music. Not all good. Some of it's good, but every label release is good and bad stuff. And I just thought it's a challenge for me to try and take, rebrand this label in a really modern way. And, and very often, I'm really into changing people's perceptions of what things are. So with that, it was literally a question of like wiping the slate clean. And in fact, it was, it was more than just a logo. It was a whole way of thinking I tried to change within the label. Because at the time their artwork was girls in bikinis kind of really cheesy imagery and it for me it was almost superstar dj kind of imagery and i went in there and i was like look we're changing this whole thing and i came up with this concept about we are defected and i said ultimately for you i think what's most important is you've got a huge fan base one thing about defected they've got massive following and i'm like you've got to understand that i think your following is as important than the people you're putting out. So we came up with a whole campaign where we photographed fans. We went to the I went to Ministry of Sound one night. We took people off the dance floor, just grabbed people. They were builders, they were policemen, ambulance, all different people photographed and photographed the security guards. And I was like, this is defected. Defected is your fan base as well as the musicians. And we photographed DJs as well. So you had MK in there, Dennis Ferreira with the security guard. And, it's just, and you couldn't tell the difference between people. And I thought that's a really exciting way of doing it to kind of and for me house music growing up during the you know summer of love you know house is a feeling it's, it's kind of like you know we are out it, for me it's it was about a, a family and that's kind of how i approach that i mean the logo is a secondary thing i mean the logo isn't necessarily what it's all about for me it was about the whole concept of trying to get away from putting djs on pedestals and um making it more about everyone and that's quite a big change um, in terms of the concept there. And you've said before in the past that your um, soul wax sleeve, the famous soul wax sleeve that you did, took a little bit of convincing in terms of getting like the label and even soul wax themselves to, to sign off on that. Was was that the case with Defected when you came with this idea? Did they take some convincing or were they on board immediately? No, no, they were. I mean, as I said, I've known Simon for a long time. And, you know, I pick who I work with very carefully and they're good people. I like them a lot. I really enjoy working with them. They're open-minded. We, you know, bounce around. I still work, you know, I work for them on a regular basis. They got the idea straight away. Unfortunately, what happens is, and what's happened is, further down the line, DJs start to get pissed off. Why is my name not big on this thing? And that's affected, unfortunately, because you have this kind of thing where egos are getting involved and the original ethos of what we tried to do hasn't quite worked. And I don't think some of the bigger DJs are happy being thought as equal to their fans, sadly. But I come from a culture where you know, DJs were never on stages. DJs were hidden. And that's kind of, for me, that's how they should be. Looking at your website, it lists some of your clients. And these include BMW, Lexus, Coca-Cola, Nike, Sony, Tate Modern, v yeah. Topshop. The yeah. list really goes on. How do you approach a project working for a, a brand like that versus, say, doing a video for a power record on Diagonal? There's no difference, really. I mean, I'd like people approach me knowing my way of thinking. I always try to push things as much as possible. I approach every project the same. So when I did Oscar's power video, it's no different than doing something. I did a video project for Lexus, but it, it, for me, it's a, it's a brief, it's a challenge. You know, for, for me, that's what I get excited by. I get excited by trying to come up with ideas and solving briefs. That's kind of what my life's all about. So um, I don't approach it any different way whatsoever. 
And how would you describe the progression of your visual art and design stylistically? I mean, there's obviously a very big difference between those early, very colourful sleeves you did and, say, the, the format yeah, yeah. non-artwork. So how, yeah. how would you describe that progression? It's called growing up. When I grew up, I was really inspired. I read, you know, I was inspired by comic books. I didn't have the knowledge that I have now, you know. So my brain was perhaps wilder. And I was turning up when I was doing stuff for Champion and Network and all these labels at the time. I was doing a sleeve every day. I didn't have time to think about it. I was just do it. I'd go to a club, get completely battered, come in the next morning, and I'd be designing the sleeve for the record I'd heard. But there were fun times. And as I grew up and I got older, also I can't deal with as much visual noise in my head, around me and in my head. I need to have a final, a more balanced way of thinking. And so my work has gradually become more refined because it's more meditative. It's more, my brain isn't the same as it was when it was 18, 19. And I think my work has become more refined. I think it's become more about ideas. I think they're a bit more intelligent. I've, I've, just, I've just grown up. I've become smarter, I think, perhaps. So you're always, of course, juggling several projects. What do you hope to achieve in, in 2016? I want to do another compilation, but step it up. I'd like to try and do a compilation for a major label this time because... The problem is when you're doing compilations for indies, it's impossible to get major label catalogue. So I think about all these kind of Sony or Universal Music Group, the, the amount of catalogue they have, which is incredible. I want to try and do a, a compilation for a bigger label this year. Have you um, visualised what that what that could look like? I have, but I'm not going to talk about it yet. I'm working on it. If it happens, it's going to be amazing. So I've got an idea for one which could be really good. Yeah, I want to do that. And then I'm going to try and get three albums out this year. Like I said, I'm sitting on 80 tracks. I'm trying to work out how best to do it. But I think there's at least three albums and I need to get them out this year. Then at the moment, I'm working with Clams Casino. Doing In what capacity? On a design capacity. So I can't, I don't think I can talk about it yet, but I'm working with Clams Casino on something, which should be really exciting. And that's going to pretty much take up, I think that's enough to do this year. And you're into your fourth decade of life as, fourth a, decade. as an artist. Is it my fourth decade? Well, I'm just sort of tracing that back to yeah. the S Express yeah, late true. 80s. Yeah, it is. And throughout that time, you've continued to be this kind of one-man organisation. What kind of framework or infrastructure have you built around yourself to make you know your creative life sustainable? <laughs> I worry about this all the time. I think, about, to be honest with you, all my contemporaries are hugely successful, financially made for the rest of their lives. I get bored very easily, and unfortunately, in many ways... I've never focused on one thing. If I just focus on design, I'll probably in a different, be in a different place I am now. If I focus just on music, maybe not music because the music industry has changed so much, but I get bored very easily. I like to do a lot of different things. I mean, I live the same life I've lived since I was 18. You know, I go to bed at two, three o'clock every night. I wake up at nine, 10 o'clock and my days are pretty much the same. I do a bit of work in the morning, not much, and have a long lunch then I'd probably work into the evening. And somehow, I mean, I've been self-employed since I was 18. You know, somehow work just keeps on coming in. You know, when you're freelance, when you're self-employed, you get scared. You, you, you never realise where your next job is coming in. And that's probably what gives me the hunger. I mean, I don't have kids yet. When I have kids, probably things are going to change. But at the moment, I'm kind of selfish in that way. And I literally, I don't know, I'm quite fussy. I don't take on every job that I want to take on. Somehow I'm still here. And I think... I'd like to think I'm just genuinely passionate and excited about things I do. I don't do, you know, I don't do things for the money. I don't do things because I have to do it. I do things because I want to do it. And I think for me, the most important thing is I think I have integrity and integrity means a lot to me, you know, so um, I'd rather have integrity than have um, live the life of Riley, I think. So much confused that I can't think straight, but I feel that 